Hello and welcome to another episode of the Northeast Law Review podcast. I'm Amy Jones, a final year law student at Newcastle University and also the publicity officer at Solidarity, the Newcastle branch. Uh, I'm Izzy Ponsonby, a final year history, French and politics student and I'm the events coordinator for the Newcastle Solidarity team. Today we're here with Alexa Nessie, the executive director of Solidarity. Solidarity to discuss the refugee crisis and Lexi's role within Solidarity and the work that the organisation does. Solidarity is a charitable society at Newcastle, however we're also part of a wider organisation which aims to raise money to provide legal aid and other types of aid to those seeking asylum. So I'd like to start by welcoming Lexi to the podcast um, and I'd like to ask you a bit more about what your role involves and the importance of educating people about the refugee crisis. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Um, it's really exciting to be chatting to you guys. So my role as executive director is basically to oversee the operations of the charity. Um, and namely, they fall into fundraising to provide grants to NGOs that offer legal aid to refugees and asylum seekers, but also educating and raising awareness amongst the student body, but also the wider population about um, the injustices that face refugees, asylum seekers and other displaced peoples worldwide. And I suppose the third key objective to my mind is also to equip our team as students with the skills and with the confidence to go out and be activists for refugee rights throughout their future lives. Yeah, that's um, something we've been discussing at the moment, me and Izzy especially, is education. And one of the things that came up was how there's a lot of important terms that are useful to know when speaking and learning about the refugee crisis. A lot of these can be mixed up and it's important when you're talking about the refugee crisis to get this terminology right, as some of them can have negative connotations. Yeah, so we were talking about the one that gets mixed up most, we think, is probably a refugee and asylum seeker. So for those listening, we wanted to clarify the difference. So an asylum seeker is someone whose request for sanctuary has yet to be processed. Uh, national asylum systems are in place to determine who qualifies for international protection. However, during mass movements of refugees, usually as a result of conflict or violence, it's not always possible or necessary to conduct individual interviews with every asylum seeker who crosses the border. These groups are often called prima facie refugees. Um, in contrast, refugees have been granted asylum. Uh, the legal definition of refugee can be found in the Refugee Convention as someone who is unable to return to their country of origin, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality or membership of a particular group. Yeah, that's something that um, a lot of people get mixed up with and it's actually something that I didn't know very well until I started Solidarity. Um, I also think something or a term that a lot of people use is immigrant when referring to asylum seekers and refugees but I feel as if this that has quite negative connotations especially the label illegal immigrant which can kind of appear more frequently in anti-refugee rhetoric and undermining refugees rights so I think it's important that people don't label um, asylum seekers and refugees illegal immigrants especially because there's actually no such thing as an illegal asylum seeker or refugee because under international law, um, all countries have an obligation to host people who are fleeing from persecution. And that's something that I've found 
quite interesting to to learn since joining Solidarity because I think a lot of people think that asylum seekers and refugees are just coming to this country without any particular legal reason or as an illegal immigrant when that's not the case at all. So I think it's important that anyone listening um, doesn't refer to these people as an illegal immigrant um, and perhaps if you are speaking about the refugee crisis and speaking about refugees or asylum seekers it could be better to describe someone as a migrant rather than an immigrant um, which can refer to people who have voluntarily moved country or someone who has also moved due to persecution or war. Um, so as executive director of Solidarity and someone who speaks about the refugee crisis all the time, um, I wanted to ask you, Lexi, what your biggest advice is to people when using specific terminology and educating others about the refugee crisis? That's such an interesting question. I think it's important because, as you've said, these are quite complex terms that often do have legal definitions. Um, and it's a double-edged sword, right, because we want to be accurate. And as you've just described migrant is a very umbrella term anyone could be a migrant I could be a migrant if I go on holiday somewhere but so are refugees and asylum seekers because it's people that have crossed international borders so it's useful to use the correct terminology so that people understand who you're referring to we're talking about refugees we're talking about people who've fled persecution not people that are coming for a choice or for another reason but at the same time I've noticed that it's the use of the word migrant or as you've also mentioned immigrant can as you've identified have some really negative connotations and that's not something we want to play into either we don't want to imply that refugees and asylum seekers are the only in inverted commas good migrants and we, we definitely don't want to vilify people who migrate for other reasons so I think what's helpful for me is just to really explain very clearly to anyone I'm having this conversation with that refugees and asylum seekers are people who have fled persecution based on their identity or their beliefs um, it's not about living in a country where there's a war it's not about wanting to move for a job it's about who you are and somebody wanting to cause you harm because of that that's really interesting thank you I think it's so important that people use these right terms as we've been saying so thank you for um, your insights there um, so it's important that people are educated about the refugee crisis, obviously, but I think it's also important that people are educated about the importance of legal aid and what um, we as Solidarity do. So Lexi, do you think you could tell us a bit more about the aid that Solidarity raises money for and the work that the partner organisations carry out? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm also so happy you said that because I think it's one thing to raise awareness of the issues and the injustices, but actually... The next step, the key step, is to raise awareness of actually what can we do to make this better? What are the solutions? And for me, and I hope for everyone at Solidarity, we really view legal aid as one of the most sustainable and empowering forms of aid that we can offer. And legal aid really refers to any form of aid provided that is relating to somebody's asylum claim in this context. So asylum processes are really quite complex legal processes that are in many cases almost impossible to navigate without expert guidance and yet in Greece where we're funding NGOs 
there's actually no obligation for the state to provide any legal guidance prior to your asylum interview. And this interview is so pivotal because a successful asylum application based on this interview means that somebody who's fled violence, who's fled persecution can remain in that country and access rights to education, to housing, to work. Um, Whereas somebody who gets rejected, even if they have a very legitimate fear of persecution, could be deported back to that very danger they fled from. And so it's pivotal. And yet so many people are effectively set up for failure because it's an incredibly bureaucratic and specific process. So to go back to your question, the legal aid that we fund is across six NGOs working in four different regions of Greece. And they provide a variety of services. Some of that is interview preparation, which is informing people of their rights and of the criteria within the process for their asylum interview. Others are related services, for example, translation and interpretation, because the asylum process is all in Greek, right? Or English, um, often. Also, medical and psychological advocacy, oftentimes people need doctor's reports or psychologist's reports to confirm that they have certain conditions. Um, and they also deal with appeals where people have been unsuccessful, but actually really do have a legitimate claim and family reunification, which is where somebody may want to be united with individual in another country who they're related to. That's really interesting. I think a lot of people don't realise how important legal aid is in the asylum process. I, um, I definitely didn't before I started um, working solidarity this year. I think one thing that really stood out to me was the trauma that's often brought up during the um, asylum interview and the fact that without um, proper legal aid it's really really hard for people to put across their account and say what they say kind of the criteria that they need to tick off to get asylum um, and I think also something that really stood out to me is often when people talk about uh, like aid for refugees and asylum seekers quite often you think about going and helping in the camps and yeah. Um, and providing things like blankets and resources and obviously all of that's really really valuable but I think it, this year has really shown to me that legal aid is the most like you said the most sustainable because that's that's the thing that really helps that person it's things like blankets and food and resources are helpful in the short term but really the only thing that can help this person move on from their life is the legal aid so I think I found that so interesting this year yeah, completely. And obviously, immediate aid is crucial, as you said, and it's necessary. But it was interesting what you brought up just then about trauma, because really, I can say with certainty that anyone who's been forced to flee their home as a result of persecution and made these deadly journeys from their home countries to arrive in often Europe um, has experienced trauma. And trauma affects the way the brain stores and recalls memories. So actually, to meet the very specific criteria of an asylum interview to provide all the very precise details of your story which can be so specific as what was the color of the ceiling in a certain police station which villages did you pass through on your bus journey which might well have been years ago um without preparation and support and you're right also that many of these asylum interviews can be incredibly re-traumatizing for people so having some prior support and preparation. One of the lawyers at one of the NGOs we fund often refers to us as being a critical friend who's there just to support you and getting your story straight and just working through it with you. Um, 
is I just think really the key in preventing so many unjust deportations. I think critical friends is a really lovely term. Do you have any stories where um, it's been really helpful to have something like that? Well, I have a story of where actually someone didn't have that legal expertise and that guidance. And that story came from one of the lawyers at an NGO that we currently fund. And he had basically met this man within the camp um, who had already had his asylum interview. And so as a legal aid NGO, there wasn't so much they could do while he was waiting for his decision. But they got chatting and um, the lawyer asked this asylum seeker, you know, how was the interview? And he said, yeah, it went really, really well. I said to the people in the interview, look, I know Greece is in a difficult position. Financially, I really want to do my bit to be just an upstanding member of society. I was a truck driver back in my home country. And if you'll let me, I'd really like to be the best truck driver Greece has seen. I will pay my taxes and I will do good things in this country. And the lawyer said, okay, right, but did you tell them why you fled your country? Now, I won't go into detail on that here, but several members of this man's family had unfortunately been killed as a result of persecution. And this asylum seeker said, no, of course I didn't. Why would I say that? I didn't want them to think that I'm going to cause problems or be a troublemaker. Of course, I didn't say that. And anyway, they must know. They must have seen thousands of other people from my country. They must know what's going on. Now, unfortunately, in legal terms, what this asylum seeker has said in his interview is, I'm an economic migrant. I don't have a fear of persecution because he didn't say what was needed. But of course he did. And that man would be in immense danger were he to be returned. And I think what this really rammed home for me was that A, not only was that an incredibly sensible thing to say for someone who's just trying to represent themselves to the best of their ability as not someone who's a lawyer, but also how even five minutes with a lawyer to inform you of the rights and of the process and what you need to say could have really dramatically changed the outcome for this, this person. That's so interesting. Thank you. I think it just shows, like you said, just five minutes and it just shows how valuable legal aid can be. So we've now talked about the importance of legal aid and understanding their rights and what they're entitled to. So we've now talked about the importance of legal aid and understanding their rights um, and what they're entitled to. So Amy, what are the current international protections for refugees? I spoke a bit before about how people tend to treat refugees as if they are illegal immigrants. It's actually not illegal at all to seek asylum. In fact, it's a human right. Everybody has the right to seek and enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution. It's enshrined in the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights and in the UN Refugee Convention, which defines what the term refugee means. Um, so under the Refugee Convention, Article 31 actually states that refugees cannot be penalised for entering the country illegally to claim asylum. So this is just coming back to what we were saying before with the whole terminology and how people label people illegal immigrants when they're seeking asylum, when that's just far from the case, as even under international law. Um, so yeah, I, I find that really interesting personally, especially when you think about how they're treated in this country. Yeah, the continual reference, um, especially I've seen it recently in the UK mainstream media to this concept of illegal or legal asylum seekers as you've just said is incredibly baseless but also deliberately inflammatory given that it's nowhere in international law 
I think we instead tend to refer to regular or irregular routes of arrival, because as you've said, actually, there is no such illegal route to claim asylum. Yeah, it's really interesting actually talk about the um, international protections of refugees, because the UK currently um, fosters a hostile environment policy, which means that the government then implements certain policies such as harsher immigration laws, um, no recourse to public funds for certain groups as refugees, which makes it really hard for anyone to do anything really. Um, so, but the, I think one really important thing is the new plan for immigration, and I believe it actually breaks international law, um, and it's something that Solidarity actually campaigned against recently. So, Lexi, could you talk to us a bit about why the new plan is so harmful? Yeah, well, I personally believe that the new plan is a serious departure from established international law, but also just a really harmful degradation of, of human rights, because what it's really seeking to do is to penalise asylum seekers who have arrived by what the Home Office is choosing to refer to as illegal routes, but I'm going to use the phrase irregular routes, and to offer people who've arrived in the UK via these irregular routes lesser protections under international law. Now, the reality is that many people who are forced to flee their homes have to do so at hours or days notice, very often with nothing other than the clothes on their backs. So to expect people in these circumstances to somehow be magically flying into Heathrow Airport just seems very absurd and quite dangerous to me. But more to the point, the hostile environment that you touched on is just conceptually unsound because somebody who has been forced to flee their home as a result of persecution, their life was already in danger. No obstacles that are put in place are going to change that fact. So all you're doing is furthering the suffering really of people who are just trying to seek safety, have a legal right to do so and are going to do it whatever hostile deterrent mechanisms are put in place. So really we would like to see an end in the UK to this hostile environment and a more welcoming and respectful culture. Just for people who maybe haven't heard much about the refugee crisis, could you outline what the new plan is suggesting? Yes, so the new plan is suggesting, among other things, um, this penalisation of those who've arrived in the UK via irregular routes, but it's also bringing in what is known as a one-stop process and a good faith requirement, which effectively means that asylum seekers will have one opportunity to bring forward any and all information that is relevant to their asylum claim. And if further information is brought in down the line, asylum seekers can be deemed not to have acted in good faith and judges are instructed to give minimal weight to this new evidence. But we spoke earlier about the ways in which trauma can affect how memories are recalled and also being in these situations is inherently traumatic and I certainly would struggle to tell you in specific order what happened to me last week let alone last year and there's no mention in this plan at all of what legal aid is going to be provided so it really seems to be setting asylum seekers in the UK up for failure specifically for people um for an example, members of the LGBTQ community who, in the countries they have fled from, may never have been able to speak to their experience. 
to expect that asylum will be able to bring forward all of the relevant information to their claim in a situation that they've never spoken to in their lives is really unreasonable in my opinion. Yeah I think it's just such a harmful plan and I think it sets quite a dangerous precedent about the way that the UK treats refugees and all types of migrants so um, well it's interesting as well I think we touched on this a bit before but the laws in the UK are relatively hostile towards refugees but I think this really impacts public opinion in general. Yeah definitely I think both of you will have had this experience as well from talking to family, friends, people who aren't in your social sphere that the public opinion in the UK does reflect the laws, it reflects how the government feel about refugees and it reflects how the media feel about refugees which is probably the main problem and there is such a hostile environment that is so hard to change Um, and this is something that I've liked about Solidarity and especially Solidarity's website because of the work that they're doing to dispel these misconceptions and myths um and for anyone listening who wants to look on the solidarity website there's actually a page on mythbusters which i always think is so interesting because you look and you think yes these are the conceptions that people in the uk do have and it's quite shocking to find how false they are um so I kind of, I wanted to ask you, Lexi, what you think the most common misconception held is? I think still to this day, the overriding misconception is that refugees coming to this or any other country in Europe is inherently a bad thing or a harmful thing. And that the crisis in the phrase refugee crisis is the fact that there's too many people arriving and that that's the bad thing. I think that's what is key for me to try and tackle because there are some very real crises happening around the world that are forcing people from their homes. There's civil war, there are countries which criminalise homosexuality, just to name a few. There's also, of course, other things like natural disasters which don't fall under refugee law in this way. Those are real crises. Another crisis is that of the horrendously inhumane reception conditions for when asylum seekers arrive in Europe frequently in countries such as Greece asylum seekers are forced to live in camps which are basically open air tents with very little access to any kind of sanitation or other services for months or years before they receive a decision on their asylum application now that to me is also a crisis but actually Studies show time and time again that the more diverse, the more multicultural a region is, the better it performs on so many indicators, including economic. Um, But more to the point, it's not really about whether a country does or doesn't want asylum seekers and refugees. As you've established, it's actually international law and Europe has a duty to come together in support of upholding human rights for people who fled persecution. And I think that's the real misconception that there's some sort of debate about whether we do or don't want people. Like, A, you don't actually have a choice, we have to. And B, there's not that's not what the bad thing is. Like the bad thing is how horribly people are treated. I think that's really important to remember. Like when people talk about whether we should or shouldn't accept them, whether we do or don't want to accept them. Asylum seekers and refugees don't want to be asylum seekers and refugees. 
they just want to be able to live somewhere without being persecuted. I think as well the point that you said about the reception in camps and things is really interesting um, because I did my dissertation on exploitation of refugees, refugee women in particular, and it showed that they were just exploited at every single turn, like when they got to a camp in Greece, when they arrived in the UK, they were exploited in their own country. And without providing protections for refugees that you're legally required to do anyways, their lives just continue to go down this path of exploitation and persecution. It's just it's terrible. Europe's choices are contributing to further violations of human rights and further injustices. These things are not only happening in the countries people have fled from, but there is, as you've said, more exploitation, more injustice, more violations happening as a result of the choices that have been made by those in power. And it's our job to to try and undo them. I think kind of connecting to what you were saying as well, it's, it's kind of crazy how we do have this duty and people think that we take loads of refugees and that we shouldn't be taking any more because we've got too many. Well, what, one, that's one of the biggest misconceptions as well, because I think there's a statistic and it's there's like 0.2% of the population are actually refugees. And we hardly take any refugees in comparison to places like Turkey or Lebanon, which like have their own problems in itself. So I just think it's insane that we should be having this conversation about whether we should or should not take them when it, it's a duty in itself. And also we don't actually take that many refugees as it is. Yeah, exactly. Like if you want to talk about percentages, um, 0.26%, I believe, of the UK population of refugees, that's more like 21% in places like Lebanon. Um, so I think often there's a conception, as, as you said, that the UK kind of really is overburdened but whether you look at it in terms of real numbers or as a percentage of the population it just couldn't be further from the truth. I think leading on from that as well um, about being overburdened I think another massively common misconception is that refugees sponge off the state so refugees actually receive housing for um, £37 a week in the UK compared to £257 for a single and native born UK citizen. Um, they're quite often asked to pay for things like medical care, even though we have the NHS, even though they're often destitute and have no money to pay for it because they've they've fled their country. They don't they didn't bring all of this money with them to pay for it. And again, the no recourse to public funds for many refugees mean that things like women escaping domestic violence, they have no way of receiving any financial help from the government. So especially when we're one of the wealthiest states and nations, it just doesn't make sense. Coming off of that, Lexi, what do you think we in the UK can do to support refugees more? This is such a great question. And this is the ethos of solidarity in so, so many ways, I think. I think a lot of the ways that we can dismantle the hostile environment and contribute to a more welcoming and inclusive world for refugees and asylum seekers is actually by having the tricky conversations with our friends, with our family members, with our colleagues. I think real culture change requires unity across the entirety of society 
Um, and that requires access to correct information, right? Most people in the world are good people who really just want to do their best by their loved ones and by themselves. And um, unfortunately, when we're given harmful or false information that ties our values of family and of our own security to this fear of the other or ties the challenges that we face to the arrival of the other, people become very hostile um, where actually if you can try and explain and break down why some of those um, myths are, are actually false, really most people out there I think really do just want to see the world become a better place. Um, so I think that's a big thing we can do. The people who I defer to most on this are the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. I think they do some really amazing work on this. Of course, Solidarity has resources on our website, but I would really encourage anyone who wanted to read a bit more to also go to JCWI because I really just love their content. Thank you. I think one really interesting thing, like you're saying about having these discussions, is political change happens kind of from the ground up a lot of the time. And like we were saying about the negative government policies impacting on negative public opinion, in turn, constant protests and open letters and things like that and really changing public perception will mean that the government has to act in the same way and has to kind of make these changes to keep up with the public perception really. Yeah, and like for, for me, of course, we're, as a charity, we're apolitical, right? But I also just fundamentally don't think that upholding human rights is a political issue. I just think that were we to be in a culture where refugee rights were prioritised and understood, it just wouldn't be something that could be so divisive. So if somebody listening to this podcast wants to contribute to solidarity, what can they do, Lexi? Um, well, a multitude of different ways for people to get involved with the solidarity movement are available. One of those is to buy one of our custom-made t-shirts or solidarities from one of our wonderful Newcastle reps. Um, all proceeds from these t-shirts go to funding legal aid for refugees um, with the NGOs that we give grants to. Um, but there are so many other ways that people can get involved. As I've said, having conversations is important. So if you wanted to attend some of our events, take a minute to follow us on social media um, and really just have a chat to one of the reps, just learn a little bit more about refugee rights. I know that anyone on the team, this is all of our favourite topic to discuss and we really do just want to help people to, to learn more about this. So um, whether it be a financial contribution or an educational one we'd really love to connect with as many people as possible yeah I mean I know that all of us are always really happy to have a chat and we've got um, a Newcastle Solidarity Facebook page now as well so please feel free to give that um, a like and a share so Lexi where do you personally see the charity in 10 years time that's a really difficult question to answer because the idealistic person in me would really hope that in 10 years time, not a single person who is forcibly displaced around the world is forced to live in a flooded tent. And also that every 
asylum seeker has access to legal aid as is their fundamental right um i know however that to make long-term change like that takes a long time and requires a huge effort so in the short term i really see solidarity continuing to grow we currently have 830 reps but i'd love it if we could grow the team expand to other countries um and really maximize the amount of support we can provide to NGOs. We are a relatively small organization and the beauty of that is that we can be super flexible, super adaptable and react really quickly to changing situations. But the downside is that every year we receive more applications from amazing NGOs doing work that I know is making an amazing difference that we just can't fund it all. Um, so I'd really love to continue to grow our capacity to actually support really meaningful work. So now you've talked about where you would like to see the charity in the future. Um, kind of, could you talk a bit about what's happening now and the achievements that Solidarity has has achieved in the past year or so, and maybe what's your own personal milestone over the past year? Despite obviously we've been in a difficult situation with COVID. Well, at this point, I really just want to give it up to all of our student volunteers. We're entirely a student-run organisation, and despite this being an unbelievably difficult year for students everywhere, not being able to see their friends, not knowing what's happening with their degrees, often actually really being at risk, or their families being at risk of this pandemic, um, our team has just come together to reach achievements that I really like I could never have even dreamed of this when I when I started this role as executive director and I'm just very grateful to everyone volunteers and supporters who have helped us but this year in the in the first seven months of this academic year we were able to provide grants of a total of 103,000 pounds to fund Greek lawyers at six legal aid NGOs um, and that's in addition to every one of our student reps across all 60 of our uni teams having the opportunity to run their own initiative whether that be on their own or in small groups every person had the opportunity to advocate for refugee rights in whichever way they felt was right for them and some of these were fundraising we've seen some amazing things we've seen cooking classes led by refugee chefs we've seen someone start an earring business um, we've also seen some really amazing awareness raising initiatives ranging from one day conferences to, for example, podcast shows. Um, and I think for me, that has been one of the key achievements that actually everyone's taking this forward in their own way, playing to their own strengths and building their own skills. Um, and I think what else has been really just lovely to see is how much the community the solidarity community have just really come together around us like everyone who's purchased a t-shirt who shared something on facebook um i think the solidarity family is a very real thing yeah absolutely i've really enjoyed the um we've had workshops and things this year and so many panel talks they're just i feel like i've learned so much in this year um i feel like i could go back to myself a year ago and read off a load of facts <laughs> what would um one thing we always talk about is obviously tricky conversations and we've spoken about terminology what would be your top tips for how to cope with difficult conversations 
this is something that I used to really struggle with. I think the reason was that I feel so strongly and I care so much about these issues that when someone doesn't agree with me, it almost felt like a personal attack, like they didn't share my values and that really hurt personally. So I think what I've had to learn and work really hard on is actually taking myself out of the equation. It's not about me, it's not about my values, it's not about whether people agree with me. What it's about is where are they at right now and is there anything that I can say that might help them to gain new knowledge about the issue. I don't, I think now I don't really see my role in these tricky conversations as to change someone's mind. So it's not really my responsibility or even that appropriate for me to be trying to control what other people think. What I try to do is just to provide some new and accurate information just so people can take the next step in their own thinking. Um, and I've really learned to ask why a lot more so when people say something like I don't think we should have refugees coming to this country anymore I'm like oh why do you think that and then you can actually go from there whereas if you just go in hard with your you're very wrong and here's all the reasons why not only does it turn people off and they're then not really not likely to want to engage with you and learn more but actually you might be yelling about something that's wholly unrelated to the reasons that they thought we we shouldn't be taking refugees so I've had to learn to listen a lot more. I've felt the same about that I've had quite a few conversations with my family members where have ended up getting a bit annoyed and then you realize in the long run that's just not the answer because that's never getting through to anyone and you've actually got to sit down with them and explain to them properly rather than just getting upset and annoyed about it um so I think that advice that you've just given is is really valuable for people when they are trying to speak to people about the refugee crisis and misconceptions that people have and basically trying to change their mind. You've got to be quite um, understanding and maybe understanding of other people's views as well and why they think that way. Yeah, completely. And I think one of the things that I used to get quite anxious about when I was having this conversation was someone's going to say something and I'm not going to know the statistics. So I'm not going to be able to tell them, for example, a specific percentage of funding that the NHS uses on refugees and asylum seekers. And then I'm not going to be able to make my point. And I think that was very misinformed. And actually no one, no one wants you to be a walking encyclopedia. We all have our phones. So you can Google something together and learn together. But I've also found that if I've struggled to articulate myself, actually just a really polite message in this day and age of technology with just a link to the solidarity website saying i'm not sure if i really explained myself but if you're interested we've got some more info here often people when they're not put on the spot and not made to feel like they need to defend their stance a lot of people really do just want to quietly read and think about it on their own i think it's also interesting that like you're saying about facts and being a walking encyclopedia there's so much that everybody still has to learn there's you know there's too many facts for anyone to remember we should all be constantly trying to educate ourselves and I feel like every time I see a post that Solidarity does it I'm always like oh I didn't know that specific thing and I didn't realize that this was such a problem and I think that people need to remember you don't need to you don't need to know everything you, it's okay to be constantly learning and as long as you're trying to educate yourself that was so beautifully put, that last line. But yeah, I completely agree. I think just show up imperfectly, right? Like learn together and everyone's growing and gaining knowledge.
so this is a, a bit of a, a diversion from the topic of tricky conversations, but it's something a bit more topical than that was in the news a while ago. So we saw how Gary Lineker actually housed a refugee. I think it might have been at the start of the pandemic. Um, and it was quite controversial at the time that he was actually taking someone into his home. Do you think this is actually a sustainable solution and something that a celebrity should be promoting? Um, gosh, I have to say, I'm not really that expert on what is even involved in hosting a refugee in someone's home. I think in terms of basic principles, if I may, I think what we want when, when we're seeking to provide support to refugees and asylum seekers, we always want to be doing that in a way that's really respectful and empowering, but crucially is non-exploitative and is led by the values of those people that have lived experience and doesn't play into these saviour narratives that imply that we, in more privileged settings, need to save um, refugees and asylum seekers without that they won't be able to see improvement in their situation. However, that said, the UK simply does not, as we've established, take in as many refugees and asylum seekers as it really could do. And in fact, less than 1% of the world's refugees are resettled each year. And that means that they've received um, refugee status in a country and they're then transferred to another country. The UK resettles some refugees, um, but you know, I think they could, could do more. And so I understand why communities wish to come together to try and further the provision of support within their local community. So I think it's very difficult to, to say without knowing the precise situation, but where we can do things in a way that's actually refugee led and that's respectful. I think that's the, the way forward really. Yeah, I agree because I think there's a bit of a fine line with kind of what you were saying before about you don't we don't want to victimise these people. We don't want to be saying, oh, you should take refugees into the home because otherwise they're not going to get on in life or they're not going to be able to to recover unless we take them in. Like they're not people to be saved, as you were saying. But at the same time. I completely agree with what you're saying about how we don't take enough refugees and it is an example from a celebrity and it's somebody who's spreading awareness that it's okay for them to be in this country. So I think that was quite a difficult situation, to be honest. Um, But I think that was in response to, do you remember during the pandemic where people were coming over in boats and it was kind of like a diversion on the news from all the COVID cases and people were like some of the news reporters were in the sea on boats like pointing at these people coming over and it was just ridiculous it was just like they were like vilifying all these people um just to divert from another situation that was happening in the UK and people die crossing the channel people have died in the last 18 months crossing the English Channel and so I again I understand that journalism is really important and obviously we don't know about issues as a society we can't make change but that is one of the most dangerous and frightening times in a person's life and I think there was no way of obtaining informed consent in that situation there was no way of making sure that any coverage was 
how is that in any way respectful or empowering or appropriate? I think it's very, very difficult. And I think that's where these conversations are so needed to actually, how can we depict these things responsibly? Um, I think the solution is, as it always is, to defer to those with lived experience. Yeah, definitely. I think um, just coming off what you were saying, Amy, about the um, crossing the channel and doing even like saying it was so dangerous. I think something that really shocked me last year was, I think it was October, um, in a lot of the headlines are saying that the government um, and the Home Secretary had considered wave machines to stop migrants yeah. coming over in small boats. And we just think there's people on, there's images of them, which I think is solidarity. We try not to use any refugee yeah. images to be respectful. There's images of people dying and you're suggesting a wave machine. Just shows the way that the government are currently treating refugees in our country. And not only is it dangerous, but it's also just absurd. Like who, who thinks a wave machine is an appropriate thing to do? And I think this is just a yet another example of these deterrent policies. This idea that if enough wave machines, which is just ridiculous, are put in the English channel, people won't want to cross. But they will, because they need to seek safety. People have to seek safety making it incredibly more dangerous to seek safety doesn't change the fact that you have a need for safety so i don't i can't overstate this point enough that deterrent policies are baseless yeah it's the idea that people think that they actually have a choice as well now, these people aren't choosing to take the most dangerous journey of their life they have to because they have right. no other choice so I just think it's absolutely ridiculous that they would propose something like that to stop, like to deter people from coming. They're going to come anyway. Right. And where this where this premise comes from is this notion of, oh, but it doesn't have to be the UK. They could seek asylum in Greece or France or Germany. And this, I think, is harmful on two levels. One, the UK is therefore not stepping up to its international responsibility Asylum seekers we've established have the right to seek asylum in a country that they feel safe in. And actually, a degree of choice is available. I think the assumption predicated on these policies is that it shouldn't matter to an asylum seeker where they end up, as long as they're not in their country that they fled from. But I think that's just unbelievably damaging because, of course, people still have different reasons and motives why they might need to really be in one country or another not all European countries are actually safe for different groups of people be that as a result of your religion your sexuality various reasons and when studies are done asking asylum seekers why they've chosen Europe as their place to seek asylum it's never as people commonly seem to think for the benefits that's just never one of the reasons mm. it's because there's family here because you speak the language or another very specific reason like that. So I think a lot of these assumptions that our people are just coming here for whatever reason, and if we make it a bit more difficult, they won't make sense because the underlying motives are still very real and very crucial. Thank you so much for that, Lexi. So just before we finish, are there any closing remarks? Well, firstly, I'd really like to reiterate a huge thank you to Izzy and Amy for having me, but also just to the Northeast Law Review for caring about this issue. and to you uh the listener who has made it through to the end of this podcast by being here and by being active about educating yourself on refugee 
rights you are contributing to meaningful change so I think it's important not to underestimate that and the power that the conversations you might now feel more comfortable having can achieve yeah thank you Lexi so much for joining us today and giving us an insight into your role and some of the things that you feel about the refugee crisis and what can be done um by the listener to to help and to educate people um so thank you to everyone for listening to this episode if there are any newcastle law students listening who would like to get involved or an academic or legal professional who would like to talk about their work on the northeast law review podcast please email nlelr at newcastle.ac.uk thank you very much everyone for listening